Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to Lakes Free Church today. It's so great to have you. I want to say hello to everybody watching online today as well. If we haven't met, my name is Jason Carlson. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, we're just so blessed that you've joined us, and uh, we, uh, we pray that God blesses you as uh, we worship him together and we turn to his word. It's going to be a great morning. I want to thank all of you for your prayers. Uh, for me this past week, I was out in Oregon teaching at Ecola Bible College. Had a terrific week out there. Uh, just a great time spending, with, uh, spending some time with the young people at the school there. And uh, I was teaching apologetics, so that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, but again, it's always great to come home and be a part of my church family here. And I'm looking forward to worshiping with, uh, with all of you today. But, but again, thank you so much for your prayers. I have uh, three quick announcements for you this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to encourage you to take a look at our worship guide today because there's a lot of great stuff coming up here in the near future. But three things I want to highlight today. Number one, next Sunday morning we are starting a new round of our new members class here at the church. So if you are at all interested in the possibility of becoming a member here at Lakes Free Church, we would encourage you to consider joining us for this class that's going to be running the next six weeks on Sunday mornings during this hour, the 850 service. Uh, this is a great way to get to know more about our church, get to meet some of our staff and our elders, and it's just a, a great way to learn about the culture here at Lakes Free. This isn't, a, a, this isn't a commitment on your part to become a member, but again, if you want to become a member, this is a great next step for you to consider, so check that out. Uh, second thing I want to mention, ladies, we have an awesome opportunity for you coming up in just three weeks. We have our annual women's retreat coming up. Uh, we're excited to be able to offer the women's retreat this year. We had to postpone it last year because of COVID, but uh, it is going to be running again. Oak Forest Retreat Center, a great retreat center, uh, terrific facilities, great food. We got an awesome speaker. The, the ladies planning this have a lot of fun in store for you, so I would really encourage you to consider joining this. Uh, if, whether you've been here for years or maybe you're new to our church, this is an awesome way to get connected, to build some great relationships, so please, uh, please consider that. Again, that's less than three weeks away, coming up soon. And then, lastly, want to mention for all of our members here today, uh, we are having our semi-annual business meeting following our second hour here today. So after our 10.30 service ends, we're going to have a little, a few minute break, and then we're going to come back together and uh, have a short business meeting. It's our semi-annual meeting. We're going to be voting on a, an amendment to our church constitution uh, related to the National Free Church making some changes to our statement of faith. So uh, again, if you're, if you're a member of our church, we encourage you to come on out, be a part of that with us. Uh, again, we're going to keep it short and sweet, but uh, that'll be a great time for us to, to fellowship together as members here at the church. All right, I'm going to invite you to stand for worship. We're going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing over our time together this morning. Again, I'm so excited to see you, and uh, let's just pray and commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so glad to be here together this morning. You are so good. You are so faithful, and uh, today, Lord, we have come into your presence to worship you. You are worthy of our praise, and so, Lord, we want you to be honored and glorified by all that takes place here this morning. Thank you for our church. Thank you for all the, the family here with us this morning. Thank you for those watching online with us this morning. Lord, we just pray that you would bless us as we come to worship you now, and that you, Lord, would be honored, glorified, and praised by, by the singing and rejoicing and worshiping of your people. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.
Good morning. It's been interesting this past week as the world has watched on in the wake of Prince Philip's death. Following all the details of the funeral, it's, uh, you go to not just BBC, but you go to any major news outlet, and it seems like they're all very fascinated watching the, proceed, watching the proceedings, watching things being, uh, being organized and prepared as the world looks on to see how England handles the death of, uh, of someone in the monarchy, right? It's been interesting to watch. And then, uh, you know, it, I, I find myself even as, I, as I've gotten on the news in the morning, gotten on the news, not open the newspaper, but gotten on my news apps. Um, as I've gotten my, on my news apps in the morning, I've also been, been just intrigued by it. It's interesting because you pull up your news apps and it's kind of the first thing that you see on a lot of the major networks or a lot of the major um, news outlets. And, and there's all sorts of pictures up about the relationship between Prince Philip and the Queen that uh, just kind of details what it's looked like and what, what it's, how it's developed. And I, I have to admit, I just find it incredibly intriguing. I find it incredibly intriguing. Um, n- I mean, if nothing else, just seeing pictures of the queen as, as a younger girl smitten with, with Prince Philip, um, it's just an interesting thing to actually watch unfold. I think the world takes an interest in monarchs. I think the world takes an interest in, in kings and queens and things of that nature. I kind of briefly looked at uh, I kind of briefly looked at the books that we have, our children's books, and kind of looked through all the various books that we have addressing kings and queens. I mean, it's just the stuff of imagination. It's interesting. And, and, and then I stopped and paused and, and quickly glanced through to see how many books we had dealing with presidents. Um, and I couldn't find a single fantasy book dealing with presidents. It's it's interesting. It's a it's an omission apparently. Someone needs to write some. I mean, it's almost like there's just something that's kind of knit into our hearts that we're interested with this sort of thing. We're interested with their lives. We're interested in what it's like to reign. We're interested in what it means. And uh, we, we, we hope, we hold out hope that with each monarch, this is going to be a good monarch. Now, of course, that's part of the explanation for our American political system is that we recognize that ultimately every monarch falls short, right? There is only one true and good king. There is only one better king. And if there is only one true and good king, if there is only one better king, then there is a right way to respond to that good king. There is a right way to respond. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how to respond to the better king. How do we respond to the better king? This morning, we'll begin by looking at kind of various responses to Jesus and specifically his triumphal entry, and then we'll take time to look at his reign, what it meant for him to reign. We'll be looking at John chapter 12, verses 12 to 36. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, going through 36, and I'll read our passage. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm and trees and of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel." And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, "Fear not, daughter of Zion; behold, your King is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt." His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we, we, have heard from now the law, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake, overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time that we are able to spend gathered together, hearing your word, delving into your word, looking into your word. Father, I pray that you would just reveal with more clarity, with more accuracy, Father, the beauty and the majesty of your son. Lord, that as we spend time in your word, that our hearts would be captivated by the true king, by the true monarch. Father, please just teach us from your word this morning. We pray this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Our passage then comes this morning at the heels of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus had done the miraculous again. He had continued to show his might and his power, and that has brought us to the front door of what we often refer to as Holy Week, which will end, of course, in Jesus' death, but then will open up a new door into Jesus' resurrection. For the first century Jew who did not yet know about Jesus' death and resurrection, this was Passover week that they were preparing for. So we've actually been able to speak about that only recently. Remember as we we were kind of leading up to Easter, and now, now we've arrived at that point in the Gospel of John. This was Passover week for the Jews. Now, Passover was the Jewish celebration, remembering what God had done, what God had done in ancient history when he had delivered his people Israel. He had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. He had shown his might. He had shown his power. He had brought a deliverer by the name of Moses, and he had delivered his people. And Passover was a time of remembering that, remembering that great deliverance that God had brought as the Jews would gather together and they would celebrate. Now, Passover was considered a pilgrimage festival. Pilgrimage festival, meaning meaning people would gather. They would come in from all throughout Israel, coming back back to Jerusalem to celebrate this. That's how big of a celebration this would be. In fact, they would even start arriving up to a week early in order to get prepared for, for this big celebration. And so that's what we see as our scene unfolds this morning. The crowds are streaming into Jerusalem, but there's something different this year. There's something different. There's some new excitement. Jesus, who had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead, has arrived the crowd rallies to meet him with excitement, with vigor. They, they rip off palm branches. They're waving him in the sky. In fact, our gospel here doesn't tell us about it, but they're actually even laying them down at his feet as he enters into Jerusalem. Now, why, why palm branches? Is that, is that typically what you do when you get excited about something? You're really excited, so you're like, oh, where, where, where's my palm branch? Um, well, no, it was, specifically, it was specifically something that they as a nation did that kind of showed their nationalistic pride. Because, well, A, palm branches were just, uh, they were all over the place, so they were easy to come by. But also it had ancient roots, even going back to the Maccabees and to, and to major celebrations when they would ride in and when their monarchs would ride in. So they would take these palm branches and they would wave them. And it was a way of being excited about what God was doing for their nation. So he, here they're waving these palm branches and they're shouting out in verse 13. They're shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
This is, a, this is a quote taken out of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the last of the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms were the psalms that were sung specifically. I don't know if you know this, but the, the psalms in your Bible, those, those are actually songs. They would actually sing them. It's kind of confusing for us because we look at them and we're like, they don't rhyme. Well, n- no, in English, they don't rhyme. Um, and often, actually, times, actually, even in Hebrew, they don't really rhyme. That's not typically how they did songs. But they, they were songs. And so this was the last of the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms would have been the psalms that would have been sung during Passover. So Psalm 118, that's being quoted from here, that would have been sung every morning, every morning of the Passover leading up to, leading up to this time. So this would have been incredibly familiar to the people. The people cry out, they sing this song that's exalting in this king, this one who has arrived, this descendant of David, this Messiah, and they're attributing it to Jesus. So this is a significant point when the crowds are rejoicing because they're calling this individual, they're calling Jesus their king. Their king has arrived. That's what we see as the scene unfolds. This is a well-known expression. This is excitement. This is about their coming king. So Jesus rides in on a donkey. Now, again, probably not something we would think of too often for for, for arriving king. Right? We would typically put him on a big stallion or a war horse or something like, uh, something like that. We wouldn't put him on a donkey. That seems like an odd choice. Well, John helpfully points out this is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy that goes back to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. I'll read it. Going back to Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, o, o daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. This is the prophecy that was looking forward to the coming king to the Messiah. Now, it's interesting here because, again, we don't typically associate kings with riding on donkeys, but that's exactly what Zechariah says here. And it's interesting, Zechariah, Zechariah, so, so, so a prophet, he was probably alluding back to something that came even previous, something that came even earlier. For those of you who know your Old Testament history, this isn't the first king to ride in on a donkey. Solomon Solomon himself was seated on the donkey of his father when he was anointed for his coronation. He rode into Jerusalem and went to the throne riding on a donkey. So this has ancient roots for the Israelites, this Jewish expectation that these great kings ride in on a donkey, and now this prophecy is being fulfilled even in their presence. So this scene ultimately is a bold proclamation. This is a bold proclamation. Up until this point in Jesus' ministry, yeah, he's done extravagant miracles. He's done mighty teaching. He's He's done all sorts of amazing things. But he hasn't yet, up until this point in time, claimed before the crowds to be their king. He's told his disciples he's the Messiah. He's told his disciples that he was the coming king. But he hasn't declared it before the crowds. But here... Here, he accepts their proclamation. He is indeed the king that's come. And this is also especially interesting given that they are in the Roman Empire. Rome is not okay with people just raising up a king for themselves. If a people was going to have a king, then Caesar himself would appoint said king. The people didn't have the ability to just raise it up. So so, so here, this is a political statement as well. There is a king, and it's not Caesar. The king is Jesus himself. So the scene marks a significant transition. This is a victorious warrior king and his triumphal entry, and it's an unparalleled entry. It's unlike any other. He's greater than Caesar. He's, He's establishing a kingdom that's greater than Rome. Even Rome pales in comparison because he has arrived, and he will bring peace. And this peace will extend far, 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 
far further than the Roman peace, the Pax Romana did. This will extend to the ends of the earth. Now, we have the scene established. We're seeing what's unfolding. But now the question comes, how do people respond to this king who has arrived? How are they going to respond? Our passage provides us with three different responses to the proclamation of Jesus' kingship. Let's, uh, let's tackle them in reverse order. The first one, the Pharisees, those who oppose Jesus. This unfolds in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees, they've rejected Jesus. And not only have they rejected him, but, they, but they're actually attempting to stop others from embracing him as king. But why? Why would they do that? I mean, isn't this their king, their Messiah, the one that they have been waiting for, the one that they've been longing for? Why, why would they reject him now? Ultimately, I think it's because he's called them out for their sinfulness. He has demonstrated their sinfulness. He's been like a bright light shining on them, showing them the darkness of their character and the depths of their depravity. You see, if Jesus had come and simply promoted what they had wanted and had only spoken positively about them, then I think their response would be very different to him. I think they would be quick. I would think they would be first in line to seeing Psalm 118 over this king. But he didn't. He exposed their sin. And if they followed him, if they actually turned, if they followed him, it would mean dramatic changes for them. Everything for them would have to change. Because recognizing the king ultimately means submitting to a king. It means they would have to submit to him. And just as the Pharisees were unwilling to do that then, we find that that's also true today. Romans 1.20 tells us that God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived since the beginning of creation. God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived. In other words, that there is a God and that he reigns over all things is apparent to all. It's apparent to all, even since the creation. So the real problem isn't ultimately ignorance. The real problem is an unwillingness to submit to a king. And that's what we see when we look at the Pharisees. We see a people who want to continue to choose their own path, to make their own choices, to enjoy their sinfulness, to enjoy the things that they enjoy, and they don't want to give it up. They don't want to give it up to follow a real king. That's the first response. The second response is the crowds, those who are excited about good things. Verses 17 to 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him up from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard, they had heard he had done this sign. The crowds actually seemed to embrace Jesus as king. They're not like the Pharisees. They're excited. They're singing. They're rejoicing. Isn't it great? And it, and it would be great, right? If we only had verses 12 through 16, we would think, oh, the crowds get it. The crowds understand. The, the, the crowds are honoring him as king. Isn't that great? They're faithful disciples. But we don't just have verses 12 to 16. We have verses 17 and 18 as well. The crowd was interested in Jesus ultimately because of the sign, specifically the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They're excited about signs and wonders. The Puritans, they, they, they had a notion of this that I think Tim Keller um, uh, captures well. He calls it, um, Christ was useful, but he wasn't beautiful. Christ was useful to them, but he wasn't beautiful. The crowd likes the things he could do. It was amazing. It was sensational. It was helpful. I mean, he, he was healing people. He was raising people from the dead. How could you not like that? So it was useful to them, but at the same time, it wasn't Christ himself that stirred their hearts. It was all of the things that he could ultimately do for them. How often do we find that to be true today? Where we find people's hearts are stirred by the social benefits or by the friendships or the community or emotion or maybe the identity of being a part of something greater, being part of a great tradition. 
none of which are certainly bad things. None of those are bad things, but they all can become idols when we put them first before Christ. I think it is all too common today that we look to Christ and we look to God and we find him useful, but we don't actually find him beautiful. We don't actually love him first and foremost. Third response, the disciples, those who will eventually fully understand. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. And then there's the disciples. They were slow, but eventually they did get there. They didn't fully understand at first. Sure, they understood that he was the Messiah, he was the king, but they didn't understand yet how distinct his kingship was ultimately going to be. They didn't understand these things. And though they didn't fully understand now, they followed him. And when they did eventually understand later, they continued to follow him. They submitted to trusting their king, even when they didn't like where it would lead. Even when it didn't appear to be useful to them, they followed their king because he was beautiful, not because he was immediately useful to them. They are a model for us to follow in that example. They didn't fully understand, but they gave their trust over to him. Even when it didn't seem like it would lead to good places, even when it didn't seem useful, they still continued to follow him. So the responses, so the responses to Jesus' kingship would be varied, but that's not the only thing the, this passage has to tell us about Jesus' kingship. This brings us ultimately to the second major point, the reign of the king. The reign of Jesus, the reign of this king would be distinct from any other reign. The Pharisees had remarked, probably sarcastically at the time, that the whole world was going out to Jesus. And their sentiment, their sentiment then is corroborated in this next, in this next passage as we see Greeks who were actually interested in meeting with Jesus. They're likely Greeks who had converted to Judaism, or at least were very interested in Judaism. Hence, they're here at the Passover celebrating with the Jews. Um, they, in their intrigue, seek an audience with Jesus. So they go through his disciples. They go through Philip, and they go through Andrew. Interestingly enough, two disciples with, with Greek names. They go to them, and then, and then Philip and Andrew go to Jesus seeking an audience. Well, this sparks a new discourse on the part of Jesus, who we never learn if he actually goes to the Greeks or not. It'd be interesting to find out what his interaction is. But either way, the reality that the whole world is now coming to him, that other people from other nations are coming to him, sparks this discourse on how surprising his reign will be. And Jesus identifies two areas of his reign in particular, in particular that will be both surprising and better than other reigns. Jesus will sit on a better throne, and he will have a better rule. Sit on a better throne, and he'll have a better rule. Jesus notes in verse 23 that his hour has come for him to be glorified. Now, that's significant because throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen littered the sentiment that my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But what does that mean for his hour to not yet have arrived? Well, ultimately, that hour that he keeps talking about, it's a reference to the culmination of his earthly ministry. It's the moment when it would be finished. It references especially his death, but also includes his resurrection and his exaltation. This is confirmed then by his following statement in verse 24, when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The only way for truth faithfulness to come from Jesus' ministry ultimately is through his death. The only way for fruitfulness to come from Jesus' ministry is ultimately through his death. It wasn't, it wasn't enough for Jesus to continue to live. It wasn't enough for him to do miracles. It wasn't enough for him to teach. It wasn't enough for him to do these things. The seed of his body would have to be broken to bring forth produce. And it was only through his taking the penalty for our sins. It was only through, it was only through his true 
fruitfulness of redemption would ultimately come. Like the perfect Passover lamb turning away the wrath of God through his blood, through his spilt blood. That's the only way for true fruitfulness to ultimately come. Jesus had just publicly signaled his reign by arriving in Jerusalem, seated on the donkey with palm branches being waved. People were lining up to see him take his throne. And without taking time to breathe, he announces his death. He announces his death. This isn't what they were expecting. They were expecting him to come, to be seated, and to reign forever. Instead, he comes, he announces his kingship, and then he announces his death. This isn't what they were expecting. They expected him to go from donkey to throne, and he did, but it was a very different throne. It was a very different throne. They expected him to take, like the other kings of the world, a throne of pomp and celebration. But instead, Jesus would take a throne of gruesome terror. Others would take a crown of jewels, but Jesus would take a crown of thorns. He had a higher end than his own comfort, and it would come through his ultimately better throne. Not only does Jesus take a better throne, but he displays a better rule. Verses 27 to 28. Now is my soul troubled, for what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In his his prayer, Jesus reveals the aim of his reign and what his rule ultimately would look like. He reveals his final goal. All of his ministry is revolved around this one thing, and it has shaped everything that he has done. Everything in his life, everything in his ministry revolves around this central hub. His coming reign would be no different. His reign is one that would be marked first and foremost by the glory of God. The glory of God would be central to everything for Jesus. He goes to the Father in prayer, confessing the pain and the anguish that he's about to experience, but then he strengthens himself by focusing on his task and his ultimate goal. He will go to the cross, and ultimately he will do it for the Father's glory. This is similar to the prayer that he prays at the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's putting all of his trust all of his hope in God's will because he knows that that is best, because he knows that the glory of God is superior to everything else. There's so much, said, there's so much that can be said about these verses. Jesus' prayers in general are just rich minds for us to plunder, for application, to, have, to understand how, be, how we should better pray, to understand how we should better think, to understand better how we should live. But I want to focus specifically on his motivation Jesus' reign is not marked by some kind of a hedonistic pursuit for his own comforts, but rather for the glory of his Father. And this drive to see the Father made much of, to see the Father celebrated, to see the Father honored, gives shape to his actions. He will endure the sufferings of this hour for the Father and for his glory. And it's worth it to him. It's worth it to Jesus. This is a good end. Verses 31 to 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast off. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And in his death, he would judge the world for the glory, ultimately, of the Father. And in his death, He would defeat the ruler of this world, Satan, for the glory of the Father. And in his death, he would draw people from every nation to himself, ultimately for the glory of the Father. Jewish people, Greek people, all kinds of people for the glory of the Father. All of this he would do because the Father is great and glorious and worthy of all praise and reverence and honor and adoration because he is that great. And and how, how do we know? How do we know how great the Father is? 
because that's how Jesus esteemed him. That's the Jesus would endure the coming hour that he was about to experience, that he was willing to go through the pain and agony of the cross, that he would endure the wrath of God that would come down on him, knowing full well how terrible these things would be. The one who had never sinned, who understood better than anyone who has ever lived how horrible sin was, the one who had never done that, the one who had never experienced that, would now take the wrath of God. He knew better than anyone else what he was about to experience. And for him, it was worth paying the price. Because first and foremost, his desire to give glory to God. We demonstrate how precious something is by what we're willing to pay for it. Uh, of course, we see this financially. I mean, if, if I was to pull out a stick of gum and, and, and offer it to you guys, but tell you you have to pay me $50 for it, I think very few of you would be willing, I, I hope very few of you would actually be willing to hand me $50 for the stick of gum because you know that ultimately it's not intrinsically worth $50. It isn't worth the price. We demonstrate we demonstrate how valuable something is by what we're willing to pay for it. And this isn't just true financially speaking. It's true of anything that we could give. Ultimately, the greatest thing that one could give is their life. We show what we value by what we're willing to give. When you're willing to give your life, you're showing that it's of the utmost significance. It's of the utmost importance. Now, there's always the chance that, that you could be dealing with somebody who truly does value it, but maybe they're just confused. Maybe they're willing to give their life for something that's needless. Maybe they're giving, willing to give their life for something that's not worthwhile giving their life to. Certainly that happens as well. But this isn't just anyone. This is Jesus that we're talking about. This is Jesus. He values and esteems the Father's glory above all, and he knows he knows his opinion is right. His perception is accurate. He knows how much the glory of God is worth. And for him, he's willing to give it all. Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. He paid it all, right? He bore the cross. He rose. And the Father exalted him to his heavenly throne. Jesus reigns. Jesus is the better king, sitting on the better throne with the better rule. All of this leads then to the ultimate question. It's the final question that every person ultimately has to reckon with at some point. How do we respond then to this better king? How do we respond to him? It's not a democracy. You don't get to vote. Neither do you have the luxury of anonymity to go home and ignore the king while sitting on your couch thinking that he won't see you. He knows all things. He's going to come back. He's going to return and he's going to judge so, so you can't just ignore him. Every person has to deal ultimately with the question, how do we respond to this better king? And it will change everything in your life. It will change absolutely everything. That's why the Pharisees didn't want to respond to him the, the right way. Because they rightly recognized it would change everything. Are, are you in the camp of the Pharisees? Are you sitting here this morning thinking, I, I, don't, I don't want to respond to the king that way because I know that it will change everything? I beg you to repent. To repent. Jesus is king whether you like it or not. And he is returning and there is judgment that's coming. Turn to the king. Maybe, maybe there's, there are those among us this morning we're sitting there now recognizing that maybe they found Jesus useful but not beautiful. Is that your story? Has he just become such a part of your life that maybe you're not really living your life for him? He just kind of fills in here and there to make life a little bit easier because it's what you've always done, because it's just the way you were raised. Is he just useful for you or is, or is he beautiful? Again, I would encourage you to turn to Jesus. 
as your true and better king. Now, for those of you who have trusted in Christ, who have embraced him as king, my question for you is, are are you genuinely following him? Are you following him? Do you live a life of service? Is your life marked mainly by doing what you want and what makes you happy and comfortable? Are you living a life that's focused with a razor-sharp crystal focus upon Christ and living for him and living for the glory of God? Is that what your life is like? Is that your aim? Is that, is that what you think of when you get up in the morning? How do I live this day for God and for his glory? Or do you wake up in the morning and say, it's another day. I'm going to get up and do this thing because that's what I do. I'll, I'll, I'll brew my coffee. I'll drink some coffee, eat some breakfast. I'll brush my teeth then because that's my thing. That's what I do. Or is it about God? Do you get up and do you, do you seek him out and do you ask him, Father, what do you have for today? Because this isn't even really my day. This is your day. What do you have for me today? What's your focus? Jesus goes on in verses, for backpedaling really, verses 25 to 26. Jesus says this. He describes, uh, he describes life in this way of the person who follows him. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Christ himself then presents us with a paradigm of what it means to be subject to the king. It means living a life devoted to God making him first above all else. So is, is God first in your home, with your family, with the way that you interact with your spouse, or maybe your children, or maybe your parents? Is Christ first in these interactions? What about at work? When you go there, is God first in your interactions with the other employees? What does it look like to follow Jesus at Polaris? What does it look like to follow Jesus in these different areas, these different avenues? What does it mean to follow Christ in your neighborhood and with your neighbors? What does that look like there? What does it look like in your hobbies to make Jesus king? Is Jesus truly king of your life, or have you just shoved him to the margins of your life? None of this completely fills in the blanks on what following him looks like but at least begins with an inclination or a disposition to see God honored first and foremost above all else. We're prone to want to make short lists of do's and don'ts to make us feel good, right? It makes us feel good. If I have a list of, uh, of don'ts and then, and then I, I follow them really closely, and, and mind you, my list of don'ts are usually the ones that are easy for me to follow, um, and then I follow them really closely, I feel good about myself, like I've arrived. But that's, that's not what Christ is following us, what it's calling us to. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's certainly not what he's calling us to. Rather, he's calling us to a list of dues. And his list of dues is first and foremost about honoring God in all things, just as he himself actually did. Jesus is king, and our varied responses to him don't change his reign. No matter how you respond to him does not change the fact that he is still reigning. He has been shown his might through bearing a throne of agony and through reigning for the glory of the Father. He is the better king, and he will ultimately return again soon. How will you respond to him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your might. I thank you for, I thank you for the way you display your grandeur, your glory, your magnificence. Father, I pray that as we, as we continue on through this week, as we continue on through today, Father, that your word would just continue to stir in our hearts and in our minds. Father, that you would give us a greater, clearer understanding of the magnificence of your Son who reigns on high. Father, I pray that that reality would drive us, that that reality would shape us, Father, and that it would change everything in our lives, God, that everything 
would be molded by that reality. God, please work powerfully in your people. We pray this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Let's close today with a benediction. From Jude, verses 24 to 25. Please stand. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.